Welcome back, folks. This is NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast, and I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you're all feeling fine and staying safe, wherever in the world you might be. Um, we're going to jump right into the conversation today because it's a good one. Uh, we've got Chai Greenberg back on the podcast today. Now, to those of you who haven't been with us too long, uh, firstly, you want to listen to the first conversation we've had with him, which is going back over a year now, and we'll link to that episode in the show notes. But just to give you a heads up, uh, Shai is originally from uh, Israel, like myself, spent a good few years in the US, and has been here in Japan for about a decade now. His real estate career started first in an investment banking environment, so mainly debt, equity placement, and loan sales. Uh, so he's worked on Wall Street um, with Cushman and Wakefield, did the round, so to speak. But over the course of his career, he slowly uh, migrated into a more active real estate finance and investment focus, which is what he's doing these days. So not only for work, he's also a senior VP and head of the International Business Division uh, at Genkai Capital Management, but also a professor at uh, Tokyo's Temple University, where he's developed and has been teaching the school's real estate investment curriculum uh, for a good few years. Now, we like to have Shai on the show once in a while because while it's true that most of our listeners, um, like most of our clients, are smaller scale private investors, what he does uh, and deals with on a daily basis is exactly the macroeconomic trends that then trickle down and affect all aspects of the market, including those segments of it uh, and the smaller deals that we are normally dealing with. So obviously, understanding the bigger picture has great bearing on our little corner of it as well. Shai, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you on the show again. Thank you very much for having me again. I'm, uh, I'm glad that you listened and found our previous podcast uh, interesting enough for you and beneficial enough for you to call me back. It was, definitely was. And um, I think these days, even more, um, I mean, the, the, the macro picture is really important these days. I mean, we're going through um, pretty interesting times, right? Yeah, extremely interesting times. You know, it's... Uh, it's funny, just today I listened to uh, a press conference with uh, Dr. Uh, Iwata, who is, you know, his, his claim to fame or where he came to be well known is when he, he got off the corona ship and started talking about how, you know, protection gear for the people giving services is not sufficient enough. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. So he's from Kobe University, and he's, a, if I'm not mistaken, he's an infectious disease specialist. Um, and during the press conference today, somebody asked him, so what do you think the prospects are for 2021 Olympics? And he says, yeah, I don't think, I don't think that <laughs> I don't think that there's any way that's going to happen. No, what do you mean? It's all good if you, uh, if you listen to, uh, to, you know, to the USA and to Japan's government, everything's all right. <laughs> Uh, it's amazing. No, his explanation was, you know, it's uh, an Olympic is different than, than, let's say, a baseball game or football game or a soccer game. It's people coming uh, together from all over the world. So the, the prerequisite is not only for Japan to get a grip on uh, COVID-19, it's for the entire world to get a grip on COVID-19. Yeah, and for no second waves and nothing, right? And he doesn't think that's going to happen yeah. next year. Anyway. Yeah. Good for thought. It's going to have, obviously, far-reaching implication on the real estate market in Japan and the entire economy. I, I think so. I don't think it's all bad either. Okay, but, but we're, not, we're not talking about that today. Yeah, sorry, yes. <laughs> so, look, first, before we actually touch on, on how the market is being affected yes. by that right now, um, the last couple of months, 
we, we haven't heard from you in a while before that, I think um, January last year or so. So first, maybe give us a rundown of what 2019 looked like um, on your end up, up to that point, up to the outbreak. Sure. Looks like uh, decades ago, but uh, yeah. Um, yeah, 2018 was very busy for me personally. We uh, we set up a private debt fund to invest in outbound, etc. But uh, in terms of uh, larger deals or commercial real estate universe in, in Japan, it was a pretty um, depressed market in terms of deal volumes. There weren't as many deals as as we've seen in years past, and uh, that's maybe uh, partly because of where the cycle was, where you know it came to a point where buyers were kind of like reluctant to pay the the market prices, which were very very high. Mm. Uh, but on the contrary, a lot of uh, a lot of mega deals, like kind of like historical size deals happen. So not a lot of deals in, in terms of deal numbers, but a couple of very, very large deals that kept deal volume up for the year. Okay, so less deals, but pretty big one. Can you give us some examples of those? Right. So a couple of the um, more notable deals um, were um, Fortress, uh, you know, buying a portfolio of um, affordable housing units from the Japanese government. Um, we had uh, a REIT, a publicly traded uh, J-REIT by the name of Sakura that uh, was it, it taking over. It was interesting because it's one of the only uh, wholesale takeover that ever happened in the REIT space in Japan. You had a company called Unizo, also a publicly traded company. It also, the ball started rolling via wholesale takeover, which is extremely rare in Japan, but ended up, you know, Somebody else ended up buying it in the, in the more of like a friendly uh, employee buyout uh, type of scenario. Then you had SoftBank uh, entity, pub, uh, finance entity called the Oyo uh, buying a, a portfolio of uh, service departments taking over a company called MDI. And then you had the largest transaction ever on record in Japan single transaction of 2.8 billion US dollars of uh, 220 apartment buildings that was bought from uh, from Unbank, the Chinese insurance company. It was bought by uh, by uh, Blackstone. And so that's a, it's a very interesting deal because typical to a late cycle deal, that was a portfolio that uh, uh, they sold to them earlier and they bought back from them. So uh, that was an interesting deal. Uh, that was hang on, that had, was that was who selling to who? Uh, Blackstone uh, sold this earlier on to the Chinese investor and then bought it back from them. What was it? A whole portfolio? It's it's a it's a portfolio of residential uh, multifamily properties uh, with a big concentration in uh, in Tokyo, a little bit in Osaka, and, and some in other cities, but mostly Tokyo. Okay. Yeah. And. Uh, the other uh, big transaction was uh, a U.S. firm, uh, private equity fund by the name of Fortress. That yeah. was that fund. That firm actually was bought by SoftBank also earlier, I think last year. Yeah, and then they bought uh, a portfolio of a hundred thousand uh, affordable apartments from the Japanese government. Right, and so effectively, uh, was a big, you know, headline in the in the 
foreign media that Fortress has just become Japan's largest landlord. Right. Uh, so that was interesting as well. They took a very interesting uh, take on this. Uh, this is kind of like a, actually a good example on how a fresh view of uh, sometimes, you know, uh, somebody who's not Japanese can bring uh, value to something like that uh, because everybody looked at those, uh, you know, affordable housing, which is not in the best location, not in the best condition, uh, you know, not so close to the station, et cetera, et cetera, and said, you know what, they, val- they, they, they valued it at a very low price. But these guys came and said, look, we see a potential to putting in uh, foreign blue-collar workers into these apartments. So there was like, it's not really a value-add where you go in and you do a fixer-upper, but it's a value-add where you have uh, a vision that maybe uh, you have a different view on things. So that was interesting. Right. And Fortress and Blackstone, I mean, uh, aside from uh, for Fortress now being uh, owned by Japanese, they're, they're some of the biggest um, asset managers around, aren't they? Correct. Yeah, Blackstone is, is, is definitely a huge one. Fortress... It's a little bit smaller, but uh, but very good reputation of being, you know, one of the smartest uh, guys on the on the street. Okay. Um, and then you have uh, another uh, transaction by SoftBank via another entity that they invested in called uh, an Indian entity called Oyo, which is like a hotel management company, and they uh, also bought uh, a company called MDI, which again. Uh, does something very similar. They do a lot of like a monthly mansion, what it's called, yep. like short term residential rentals. A uh, very large company uh, that does that. So they, they bought them. There's a lot of people bidding for that deal, and uh, uh, SoftBank via Oil uh, got the deal. Uh, then you have uh, so this is interesting because you see the largest deals last year were all residential. So residential is a very resilient asset class. Uh, and in Japan, a well-established one. Uh, so a lot of deals are happening around the residential uh, sphere. Yeah. Uh, and then you have uh, a couple of uh, hostile takeovers, which is, uh, you know, a first in Japan. Uh, and not a very rare occasion in Japan because Japanese investors are not, you know, and not uh, well, uh, you know, adopted or, or well, custom would also take over, and it's and it's not very something that's very common in Japan. But you've seen two of those. The first one is a Unizo, a company called Unizo, which was one of the most aggressive buyers of real estate in the past couple of years. They were bought. Uh, it was a big saga, but they're eventually bought by uh, Lone Star. They own a lot of hotels, but they own other properties as well. And then you have uh, Sakurarit, which uh, was uh, taken over by uh, Star Asia. So all of these uh, transactions started by, you know, the wholesale takeover was started and took a lot of twists and turns in the in the uh, plot, but ended up with uh, in foreign hands. So that's interesting as well. Okay, so the hostile takeovers are always, in these cases, were initiated by foreign buyers, yeah? They were actually initiated by Japanese buyers. Okay. But uh, at the end of, you know, 
it's it's a it's a difficult thing, right? So they were looking for a white knight, and a lot of companies came came about, and the bids fell, and other people came, and then it it become kind of like everybody knew that this is in play, so it went to the highest bidder at the end of the day. But with Uniso, it was a was an interesting story because uh, they put in a lot of hurdles uh, on they wanted to keep the their employees uh, on board, you know. That they won't fire any employees, keep their employees benefits, pensions, etc. It was a, it was a, uh, like the hurdle that they put in front of anyone who was going to buy this. Yeah. So you mentioned um, Sakularit, uh, the real estate investment trust. So, speaking of those, how are the J REITs doing these days or in the past year? Have they been going up, going down, seeing a lot of action? So. You know, obviously now with what's happening with the COVID-19, it's uh, it, it's it's kind of like a, a mess. But uh, over the past year, one of the reasons why deal volume was down was because J-REITs were not able to participate. J-REITs, when people buy REITs, the biggest uh, draw is uh, to get high, stable dividend yield. Yep. So REITs have a very difficult time reducing that dividend yield because they get penalized from investors selling me a pay. If you don't pay me my, you know, what I, what I, what I've subscribed for, I'm, I'm going to sell my, my share. And then it, 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 it hits their share prices. Mm-hmm. So what happened was prices went up considerably on the commercial real estate uh, market that if they were to buy properties at that, at those yields that, you know, were prevalent last year, they won't be able to, they won't be able to pay their uh, dividend yields. Right. So they were kind of like on the sidelines, which in a typical year, they're the biggest buyers. So uh, that hurt the that hurt the um, you know the volumes. But right now they're down considerably. Uh, the dividend yield right now for you know the entire J REIT universe is around five percent, up from you know low threes. Right. So you know that's typically the public market is said to be forward looking. So I guess uh, there's a lot of concern about commercial uh, real estate market in Japan if you're looking just at that this valuation. Also, another metric that people look at is the price to uh, net asset value. Basically, how much you can buy it compared to how much their properties are worth. So if the times are good and the, and the marketing property values are going to go up, typically you have to pay more than the current valuation of the property of the REIT. So let's say that the REIT owns 100 uh, million yen worth of properties. To buy the REIT, you would have to pay 120, 102, 103 more than what they actually own. Because looking forward again. Because it's looking forward. Yeah. And right now, most for most REITs, uh, except for logistic REITs, logistic properties, uh, distribution centers, etc. Uh, for most REITs, they're trading at below uh, the current valuation of the properties that they own. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. So I'm guessing, um, I'm guessing hospitality properties would be leading the downturn there with the with the yes. COVID. Yeah. Yeah, hospitality and retail are two of the uh, REIT groups that got hit the most. Some of them are trading. You know, it's it forty percent of the current valuation of the properties. Right. And again, the current valuation. I don't know who did it when, under what uh, methodology, etc. Right. Yeah. 
So, I mean, well, that, that obviously takes us to current events. Um, so not just streets, hotels, hospitality properties, retails, uh, generally speaking, they've all taken a huge, huge hit, I guess, uh, operationally. But um, does that immediately tie into their prices as well? Are people looking just forward to the next few months or are people fairly confident that they might recover at some stage when things go back to normal? What, what's the uh, look out there? So hotels in Japan is the most obvious one because, uh, you know, most of them are, they're not closed, but most of them are operating at a very, very low uh, occupancy rate. Uh, basically, I think most of them are operating at a low. Some of them voluntarily said, you know, it's not worthwhile keeping our gates open uh, with no guests, so we're, we're just closing the hotel for now. So they they took a dip. Um, if you are to try to buy one right now and you're looking to, uh, you know, which you typically would get financing from a bank, uh, you'd find it very hard to do because the bank's uh, appraisals, you know, the bank's the bank typically gets a third-party appraisal report. The appraiser really don't know how to value those right now. What, what, what price do you, or what value do you assign to a hotel that is vacant? Right. Right, how close will it come back? At what rates? Nobody knows. Uh, so that that's that's a, that's a challenge right now. Okay. I mean, we've seen similar things. Obviously, our investors are mostly dealing with um, residential or small-scale commercial. And we've seen um, on that front as well, we've seen prices decrease. Uh, I wouldn't say prices decrease, but... It, People are going on fire sales now, like everybody was waiting up for the Olympics to uh, boost prices up, suddenly um, lost that little thing, at least for a year. And other people um, who are managing maybe hospitality properties and are now vacant, the smaller scale investors are just not able to keep up with their mortgage payments. Yeah, exactly. Guest houses and so forth. So we've seen a lot of deals at prices that we haven't seen for the last two or three years. Um, And people are selling at pretty low prices. But do you think, um, aside from prices, do you think salaries, rents, um, occupancy rates on the residential front might be affected uh, if the situation continues, even for long-term leases? So, as a whole, residential is, is a very resilient um, is a very resilient asset class. It's difficult to generalize, but you know the, the right uh, location. I should say, uh, residential is very resilient uh, because urbanization still continues, especially in Tokyo. People are moving in. And in, also in regional cities, people are clustering around the stations. Uh, so if, if you have a property that is uh, well uh, positioned in the market and, and in a good location, it's a very resilient asset class. Having said that, um, I think on the very upper end and the very lower end, you might see a little bit of uh, vacancy creeping up because, um, you know, if you look at what's happening in the U.S., for instance, the jobless claims every month, it's a, it's a, it's a bloodbath, right, yeah. with you know, millions of millions of new job claims. But in Japan, the market, the, the um, job market is such that it's very... Um, it's very rigid. It's very difficult to fire people here. You have to go through a, a very constructed process and it can be challenging the court and it's very difficult to do. Uh, so 
they won't be very quick to fire people. And, you know, it, it, obviously, if you fire people, that has a direct influence on the residential market because if you don't have a job, you, don't have, you can't pay the rent. Having said that, um, if you look at the, uh, the way that the job, mar- the, the job market in Japan is constructed, you have about 28% of the employees which are part-time uh, or contract employees. Right. And another 8% which are like uh, self-employed. Uh, a lot of them are working, you know, for larger, larger firms as a, as a, you know, on an assignment basis. But those are the ones that are the easiest one to, to cut because they are not protected by those rigid laws and, and, the, and the courts because, you know, the part-time, that's a basically definition of that. So if those guys are going to, and, and those are typically maybe lower paying jobs. Uh, so if you're looking at the lower end, I think you might see, a, you know, vacancy creeping up. But having said that, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on residential in Japan and even the, the lower end and the smaller units because uh, because of the demographics, you see more and more, uh, you know, single households with, with one person. Yeah. So you might not need the, the big, uh, you know, single family home on the outskirts of town. You might be, you know, you're thinking about a uh, 20 square meters apartment. You're typically thinking about a student or, a, uh, you know, somebody who just joined the workforce. You don't think about uh, somebody in, in his uh, in his silver years, right, in his 80s or in his, in his 70s. But uh, that you, you see a lot of those type of occupants on smaller apartments nowadays in Japan. Yeah. And you mentioned low end and high end. Why high end? Is that because executive salaries might take a hit or what's going to happen there? High end uh, is is more um, is more sensitive to market shifts. Uh, and yes, if uh, we're going to see uh, some retrenchment there, then, uh, you know, pay cuts, some... Uh, high-paid expatriates being uh, uh, repatriated back home and stuff like that, you're going to see that market get the hit. Right. And um, what about other sectors? Um, I mean, sectors that were gaining until the outbreak. I mean, you mentioned logistics, um, data centers, yeah. offices. What's happening there? Yeah. So logistics, obviously, you know, we're, we're sitting at home, um, a lot of the in my neighborhood, a lot of the shopping malls are closed. The department stores are closed. So, if I'm if I'm looking to get something, uh, you know, it's very convenient for me to you know go online and get it on Amazon or Rakuten or, or one of those those firms. So you see uh, the need for logistics uh, going up for shipping and storage. Uh, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, by the way, this is a, a you know those huge uh, modern logistics centers are very expensive uh, and very large assets. But this is something that uh, even individual investors can play in because one of the weakest uh, links in the logistics change, chain is called what's called the last mile mm. logistics, which is basically uh, your Sagao Yamato office in your neighborhood. That you know, they get on their on their bicycles and they deliver these things to your doorfront. So those type of properties are, are typically not very expensive and not very large. And those are this is a, this is something that 
uh, even individual investor can can uh, participate in data centers uh, you know are very uh, large again and expensive type of properties um, that are more institutional but you have REITs that you can play in that in that field and you know obviously we're all home and we're all consuming more data and um, people saying that going forward this trend might continue using zoom using uh, uh, you know teams or whatever and and going on on the cloud having some redundancy uh, making sure that everybody can work from home all of that ties into data centers Well, Japan's a bit late to the party on that front but it's been a trend right. uh, it's been a trend here as well for the last couple of years at least right yeah and I think this uh, this thing here is going to accelerate this because in my firm we've never we've never worked from home but uh, but because we have office 365 we're able to right we have we have uh, Dropbox and zoom and teams and all those great companies uh, and it's all you Basically, all the data is hosted in data centers. So I think that, I think that you will accelerate the trend. Okay, and how about offices? Does that mean that offices will go down? Uh, more vacancies there? Um, you know, right now, Japan, uh, uh, you know, it, this is uh, the trend in many cities in Japan, but in, in Tokyo in particular, the, the vacancy rate in offices is ridiculous. It's like low, very low single digit, depending on, on the market you're looking at, it's even like at one, it's 1%. Yeah, Osaka and Nagoya so, too, right? Which means there's no vacancy, yeah. right? 1% is there's always a company moving out, moving in. 1% basically means no vacancy. So, um, and you have, a, you have a pipeline, obviously, of new offices coming online. But those are in the you know in the 80s percent is already pre-leased so there's already tenants slated for those properties so people are not as concerned about the, the vacancy rates in the office space there might be some rent negotiation going on to reduce the rent a little bit so the rent might take a, a little bit of a hit uh, you know but if things come back then it, it, it will go back again having said that you know if you Dimeth just came out yesterday and said this is going to be like the, the, like the great like the great uh, depression uh, in scale so if, if that happens then you know a lot of companies go bankrupt and so who knows right that's an apocalyptic scenario <laughs> right. and how was um, obviously bigger commercial deals take a lot of financing how was financing affected uh, in the last few months um, so Basically, so it's funny because Japan had coronavirus fairly early on with you know upwards of 30 million uh, Chinese tourists coming into Japan every year but uh, the countermeasures just started like uh, the, you know from when we're talking right now it's like a, a week and a half two weeks ago right yeah. so up until a week and a half two weeks ago all these were business as usual including the lenders business as usual because and suddenly you After that you know a state of emergency was announced uh, all the lenders started uh, you know uh, reconsidering and and uh, and uh, I should say reconsider or retrading they have not uh, but they've uh, kind of like slowed down the deals a bit 
it's like a wait and see approach. We're 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 proceeding with the deal, but uh, but but let's wait until uh, we get more clarity on where things are landing. Right, that's and the type of approach, wait and see approach. From our perspective, again, that's that's a bit uh, uh, maybe. Uh, Opposing to what you're seeing, one of the biggest changes that we've seen in the smaller investor scale um, over the last year or so is that um, if you recall last time you were on the show, we're talking about the lack of availability as far as financing is concerned. So at least for non-resident foreigners, smaller private investors, that sort of thing. And that's definitely starting to change both in and out of Japan. So we are now uh, in touch with um, at least three lenders, one Japanese, one Hong Kong, one Singapore based. And there are at least a few more out there that I'm aware of, um, mainly for Chinese and Taiwanese residents. And they've, I mean, they've all got their own criteria and limitations that they impose on borrowers, but they're out there, which was not the case a year or two ago. I mean, these days, non-residents can actually apply for and qualify for these property investment loans. And that was super rare um, even just one year ago. So again, Corona aside, what do you think brought about this, um, this big shift? That's interesting. I'm very glad to hear that. Is, is, the, is the Japanese lender a bank or a non-bank? A subsidiary of uh, a subsidiary yeah. of a bank. Right, right. So I, I, I think I think to a great extent it's, it 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 is uh, uh, directly linked to what we've talked last time. We last time we talked. Remember we were talking about the Suruga Bank. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know. The uh, scandal. Issue. <laughs> and, and, what came about afterwards were uh, the regulator were looking into a lot of the regional banks. So a lot of the regional banks pulled back. So I'm glad to hear that somebody else came in to fill the void. I think that's what's happening. I think uh, so. It, it, it basically with those guys I shouldn't say out, but kind of like uh, taking a step back and not as aggressive. It created a, uh, a void that other lenders came in to fill. Which I'm glad they did. Um, so I think that's that's the thing. There was an article uh, just this week. Uh, I think it was in Financial Times that the regional banks now are going to get uh, pretty severely hit because of this coronavirus. Because a lot of them, because of the low interest yield, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, moved into investing in um, real estate deals and equities. And, and and the like overseas getting more adventurous them, yeah which yeah. a lot of them saw a lot of uh, you know uh, big losses so you know they, they might suffer a little bit from that as well mm. okay and just as we start to wrap up what's on your own personal plate I mean Genkai Capital you're obviously involved I think from memory more in Japanese investment overseas um, so what do you think, let's say, the next 12 months might look like um, for typical, say, Japanese institutional investors? Um, I think it, it depends because uh, there's, there's all, these different, uh, all these different shades of uh, Japanese investors. Some of them are more aggressive than others. Others are more conservative. I think the conservative ones are probably going to sit on the sideline until there's a lot of clarity. I think the more aggressive ones are uh, kind of like uh, rubbing their heads in pleasure because 
they expect some opportunities to kind of like high yield opportunistic type of deal returns will come back to the market that was like uh, in the in the last couple of years at least it was like a myth right like a, like a unicorn there's weren't a lot of those in the marketplace but now I think people can look at uh, at the market and find those type of opportunities from distressed sellers people who really have to sell yeah. uh, similar to what you're seeing in the you know in, in your uh, neck of the woods I think similar thing will happen in, in the larger uh, properties as well for uh, cross-border transactions uh, I think the next couple of months, shouldn't say next couple of months, next couple of weeks are going to be a little bit slow because at the end of the day, we're dealing with real estate. So it's not like a stock or a bond where you can do your due diligence uh, from your couch or your kitchen table. Uh, you actually need to go see, smell, touch, uh, you know, interview property managers, people, competitors, brokers. Um, so that's not happening. If you can't now, travel. Yeah, if you can't travel internationally, then those, those at least final decisions would have to be put on hold for a while. So. Yeah, but after that, you think there's going to be a fair bit of deal hunting? Yeah. I I think people will be definitely looking for for interesting opportunities. Okay, good stuff. Okay, so sounds like you've definitely got your um hands full, outbreak or not. Well, thanks thanks again for taking the time to uh, speak with us today. Definitely better Absolutely. for it. Absolutely, very happy. Yes, Good to have your show happy. again. Thanks for that, Chai. And thanks to our listeners too. Glad you could be with us today, folks. Uh, we'll link to Chai's profile in this episode's show notes so you can get in touch with him directly if you want to. And we're also going to link to our upcoming webinar registration and pre-submission of questions uh, form one last time too. The list of topics for the webinar is probably full enough. You've definitely submitted quite a few uh, topics that you wanted to discuss aside from the uh, syllabus. Uh, it looks like we're going to have it on a Sunday evening, Japan time again, which means um, Sunday morning for our North American participants. But you've still got a week or two to let us know if you prefer other topics or different days and times. So we'll announce the final day and time uh, that most people voted for towards the end of the month. And we hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Do share it with your networks. And as usual, we would really love it if you could rate or review us on the iTunes store. Help us reach more people who can hopefully benefit from this content as well. That's it from us for today. Stay safe, stay at home. And until next time, Yoroshiku.